Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We will help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We will share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. I'm Kate. Organizational psychologist Adam Grant is an expert on opening other people's minds and our own. As a Wharton professor and best-selling author of Originals and Give and Take, he makes it one of his guiding principles to argue like he's right, but listen like he's wrong. Think Again reveals that we don't have to believe everything we think or internalize everything we feel. It's an invitation to let go of views that are no longer serving us well and prize mental flexibility over consistency. If knowledge is power, knowing what we don't know is wisdom. Let's get into it. I personally loved this book. It's a new book by Adam Grant, and I was waiting for it to release so that we could read it and record an episode on it because I've followed his other work, as I'm sure you have and some of our listeners have. So I want to just open by getting your initial reactions to the content, the structure, and the insights. I can dive in. So like you, I was really looking forward to this one. I had pre-ordered it and then it showed up. And then I'd been following Adam Grant on LinkedIn and seeing all of the sort of teaser posts about it. And then I didn't get a chance to actually dig in and read the book until really just in preparation for our conversation today. Often, that's not good for my enjoyment of a book. Often, Mm -hmm. if there's that much hype about it, I'm disappointed when I read it. And I was not disappointed with this. There are a lot of really practical things in here, some really thought provoking things, some great stories, some of which I had heard before, all of which had a lens that he put on it that meant that I didn't care that I'd heard the story before. I was getting new stuff from it because of the way he was pulling it apart. So thank you for recommending it and suggesting that we bring it for the podcast. Yay. I would agree with that. I was looking forward to reading it. Similar to what Kate said, there are a lot of concepts in here that I might have been familiar with. I thought I was familiar with, but his language and his way of putting it in a way that is easy to understand and is easy then for me to do what he asks us to do in the book, which is, okay, so take this in. How does this now affect your thinking? How does this challenge some of your beliefs? And I think there are some things in here that he talks about that have been really strongly held beliefs that just by opening up the possibility of questioning that opens up a whole new path and different ways of thinking. And then to his point, different ways of taking action. I also love the way he bridges the gap between knowing and doing. Definitely. And it can feel daunting to go into a book like this, especially when we all do have tightly held beliefs and there are things we just think we know and we don't question. And it can be hard to go in saying, oh my gosh, is Adam Grant just going to make me feel like everything I know is wrong? But that's not what he does. He actually says it's an art and not a science to Mm -hmm. be able to balance rethinking or questioning or doubting with certainty and persistency. And you have to have both as a leader. So I liked that balance as well. 
I'm laughing because both of you just referred to sort of strongly held beliefs. And one of the beliefs that I've held strongly that got questioned in this book was the idea that you should have strong opinions held lightly. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been committed to having strong opinions held lightly for a while. (laughs) That's true, because it's worth looking at where do our beliefs even come from and what are the consequences of holding on to our beliefs? I think it's, it's not something we often think about because they feel so true and they feel so close to us. But there are lots of examples in the book that detail the sometimes disastrous consequences of not questioning or holding on to your beliefs. It's not just about questioning yourself either. That's kind of one half of it. It's also about questioning others and doubting others and what are the best ways to do that to get to optimal results. Results. It turns out as human beings, we don't do either one of those things, maybe as much as we could questioning ourselves or questioning others. Just speaking about my personal experience, I am someone who actually does tend to question myself a fair bit, maybe too much at times, but I, I have shied away often from pushing back on something someone else has said or something that I read or hear because mm-hmm. it, it just seems like, well, what's, what's the point? I tend to prefer harmony. <laughs> like many people do. I don't think anyone prefers overt conflict, but I know that my preference for harmony has sometimes led me to not necessarily push back on someone. And and I often think about what that has maybe led to or what it could have led to had I chosen to question. And I don't know if that happened with either of you. I find that really interesting the way you brought that up. I took an assessment once that looks at possible derailers and Basically, what it showed was that I can at times have an unhealthy respect for authority. Mm. And I think that it's a reflection of how I was brought up following rules. Sometimes that gets in the way of my questioning of if it's coming from over here, it must be right. Right. Or if it seems to be backed up with this data, then it's right. And it just brought that back a little as always something to be aware of. How much credit am I giving something? The little bit that he was talking about at one point about idea cults. Yes. And that's where it had me thinking about that. The difference between something becoming accepted practice versus a fad or a trend that kind of burns itself out. So I was thinking about that in terms of when do we question things and the idea that questioning things can bring a deeper understanding and a more complex application, which then lives longer than a fad. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that showed up, and I think it may even have been in a footnote. And so, yes, this book has footnotes. There are not a lot of them, and they're totally worth reading. Speaking of which, I absolutely loved the epilogue. The epilogue, he shows a revision process and he actually demonstrates yes. thinking again. And so to me, like the footnotes and the epilogue are actually sort of demonstration about being in conversation with your own thoughts, that it was just a lovely touch in the book. One of the things that I found really interesting was the relationship between questioning and competence and how the impact of questioning when you have underlying competence is that you seem more skilled, more trustworthy, more competent. And if you don't have an underlying competence, 
then it can come across as insecure and weak. So when we're talking about art versus science, really what Grant is going at here is the Dunning-Kroger effect, that piece of when you think that you know things, question how much you know. And when you think that you don't know things, question how much you know. Do you actually know more than you think you did? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And if you think you know things, check that out. Is that really true? Do you really know so much? Absolutely. And one of the things that makes this flexibility so hard, I feel, is that I don't think that leadership culture in general values uncertainty or doubt or any type of questioning necessarily, maybe in small doses. But in general, I think that traditional leadership culture looks to a level of certainty. And in fact, you mentioned competence, Kate. I think we tend to equate competence with certainty. I don't think that three of us necessarily do, but I think traditionally that's the thing is the more certain and grounded in conviction a leader sounds, whether in the political sphere or the business sphere, the more we tend to think of them as a great leader. Whereas in fact, this book challenges us to say, actually, hey, leaders, not only should you be questioning and doubting yourself and others for the sake of a better outcome or a better product, but actually we said earlier, it makes you think more deeply it forces us to engage more deeply with other people and actually strengthens relationships when you have that comfort level to be able to challenge. So it does turn, I think, some conventional wisdom on its head. And I think in a very powerful and timely way, I mean, one of the things that we talk about quite a lot when we talk about leadership in the modern world is how fast things change and how much things are being disrupted. And every time things get disrupted, if you don't think again, you get caught out. One of the examples that gets brought up in this book is BlackBerry, which was ahead of its time and absolutely genius when it came out and the founder's commitment to the keyboard when Apple came out with a touchscreen interface was short-sighted at that moment in time. And actually now I work with a whole bunch of people who have fancy things on their computers to mute the fact that they like mechanical keyboards all the time. You know, we're video conferencing and they're <laughs> muting their keyboards because they're taking notes and they love the mechanical keyboards. So the founder was not wrong about there being value in mechanical keyboards. It just isn't the be all and the end all of how people want to interact with their devices. And some people love a touch screen. That's right. And I love what you said there that the questioning yourself and rethinking strongly held assumptions doesn't mean automatically that you're wrong. It could be yeah. that you're right and there's more or that you're partially right. And there are these three or four other things you should be taking into consideration. So hopefully that helps people see that you're not constantly wrong. It's just that we're never going to have all the information unless we surround ourselves with people and ideas that are different from ours. And it makes me think of the concept of a support network versus a challenge network. We know the importance of having a support network and people who bolster us and who affirm what we believe and who are there to have our backs, but it's equally important to have a challenge network. And I think, a lot of the great leaders cited in the book have a challenge network and are comfortable with that. And in fact, seek that out. They don't feel threatened by people who challenge them. They want it. Yeah, there were a few different examples of pairs or teams that engage in very healthy arguing and talk about thinking together. And from an outside observer, the thinking together might look very combative. Mm -hmm. But because of 
how they're approaching it and again, what they're looking to get out of it. And I think that's where that idea of detachment really comes in. The difference between judging you and judging your work and saying, I'm going to give all my reasons for this idea and I'm going to listen to yours. Our voices might sound like we're getting heated, but it's all in service of getting to the best solution, adding different perspectives and really exploring the complexity and exploring those gray areas I thought was another theme throughout the book that there's just a lot of gray to always be exploring. How do we engage those challenge networks with that specific purpose in mind? It's making me think about how important it is to have explicit agreements about how you work together. There are agreements you need to have in place, whether they're implicit or explicit, about how you're going to engage if you're going to function as challenge to each other. One of my favorite definitions of the kind of relationship that coaches try and create with their clients are a space where the client feels safe enough to be courageous. If the client feels safe enough to be courageous, then the coach can become a challenger because it feels safe, but you need the safety in order to go, okay, I'm going to push you out of your comfort zone in a way that doesn't get all of the resistance that shows up when people push us into places and we don't feel safe. That's true. There is, I think, a misconception in certain spheres that the concept of psychological safety equals everyone gets along all the time always. And it's actually quite the opposite of that. It's creating the space for such pushback or challenge to exist and not have people feel like, well, my job is at risk, or this person isn't going to like me, or they're going to shut me out of future conversations. And in fact, that desire for harmony and agreeableness <laughs> that we talked about earlier can get in the way of that. Absolutely. Way, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, I really I- liked the quote where he said that the absence of conflict isn't harmony, it's apathy. Yep. And I think that goes to what you were saying, Nithya, is that if you don't care enough to create the needed conflict, then what's missing is that psychological safety. I don't know whether it is in this book or whether it's related, but I've been seeing quite a lot on social media recently. And so I think it might actually be the fact that I've been seeing a lot of the press about this book. The idea that when you're passionate, people go quiet. There's a real problem. Yes. Because when you're passionate, people are quiet and not challenging, they're giving up. Yeah, they're leaning out. They're leaning out. This is a perfect segue actually into one of the big concepts in the book, which is relationship conflict versus task conflict. I love this concept. So just to spell it out for our listeners here, relationship conflict is the type and degree of conflict that has to do with the people themselves that are involved. It's about who are we, how are we together? Do I like you? Do I not like you? Do I trust you? Do I not trust you? And it's operating at the relationship level. Whereas task conflict is about the ideas themselves. It's about the merits or drawbacks of the problem that you're trying to solve or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. I think too often we may conflate the two and see task conflict as relationship conflict. And when that happens, people tend to get into defensive mode and not be willing to play in the messy, mucky (laughs) task conflict, which as as Alyssa said earlier, can look pretty combative because it's 
debate and it's the back and forth of ideas and it's poking and prodding and throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's not always pretty and harmonious, but because of that fear of relationship instability, we sometimes don't step into that task conflict where we really should. I talk about that difference so much with the parents that I work with who have children who struggle to succeed in school. And so often the parents see the teachers and the school administrators as the enemy because the school system isn't working for their child. Clearly it's a problem with the school system. So they need to go in and they need to fight for their child. And the first thing that I try and do all the time is say, how can you position yourself so that you and the school are working together with your different sets of constraints to solve the problem, which is that this child is having difficulty succeeding at school. It blows their minds far too often that this is the way that I think that they should go in because they're so protective. I mean, parents are protective about their kids. So when their kids are struggling and they see someone to blame, it's super easy to blame. And it can be really transformative if they can find a way to actually be on the same team with the administrators and the teachers trying to solve this problem and shift from relationship conflict to task conflict. Because the task conflict of helping a child who's somehow outside the norm thrive with all of the responsibilities that teachers and schools have to raise all of the children. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually a complicated thorny problem and getting the, the relationship conflict out of the way doesn't make it easy. It just makes it possible to solve. Definitely. And I think the same is true at the organizational level, Kate. I love that you brought that up, that organizations are often trying to solve very, very complex problems especially large organizations that have multiple functions within them, everybody with their goals and desired outcomes, everybody with different personalities. And it can feel hard to wrangle everyone around a common mission. But one of the first steps to doing that is finding common ground. And in fact, I think negotiation is discussed in the book. We know, and I think our listeners will believe as well, that negotiation is absolutely a key leadership skill and one that many leaders maybe struggle with. One of the reasons it can be a struggle is that leaders at organizations can go into negotiations with, okay, what's the case I have to make? What are the points I have to make? Here are the things I have to get out there. And instead, I think the book challenges us to say, well, what if actually you went into negotiation by first trying to find common ground and finding the places, not just the, the points on which you agree, but establishing relationship stability so that you can get into task conflict in a really safe and healthy way. I love this because I have to negotiate all the time in my role and I, I coach leaders who have to negotiate a lot and it can be hard to go in without being on the offensive or defensive, but just to say, hey, where are we today? What's going on? What's on your mind? What's on mine? What do we both want and agree on the definition of the problem? He talks a lot about curiosity and we've talked a lot about that through other reading that we've done. That idea of approaching confusion with curiosity can also really help when you're in a negotiating situation where to you, the way forward seems 
clear and you just can't find your way to understanding the other person's point of view. So to come with curiosity and then the other concept he talks about instead of perspective taking, the idea of perspective asking. I know we all come across this a lot when we're coaching people who will say, you know, I just don't understand what they're thinking or I just don't understand what's important. And our response is, have you asked? Right. And <laughs> stop guessing and get and ask. Have that exactly, conversation. Exactly. So when you're asking from that place of curiosity and opening up the funnel to explore multiple ideas before you then try to narrow things again to get to whatever the next step is or the best solution is just a really important mindset to go into negotiations with. I think one of the things that complicates things is if you don't already believe that you can go into a conversation and be genuinely curious about the other person and take care of what really matters to you, it's hard to just have the conversation because, and this gets pointed out in this book, people are really, really smart and really sensitive. And if I go into a conversation and I act curious, but you can tell that actually what I'm trying to do is figure out how to get you to agree with me, you're not actually going to answer me like I'm curious. You're going to answer me like I've attacked you. And so I have to actually be genuinely curious without an agenda when I'm asking you my questions. And I still, if I'm going to succeed in a negotiation in the long-term picture of what I'm trying to accomplish, I have to trust that I'm going to continue to try and solve the problem and meet my needs while not trying to convince you of my solution. And that's really, really hard unless we're willing to go into the conversation believing that we might have to think again about our own idea of what the solution is or maybe even our own definition of the problem. And so if we're attached with our ego to the position that we've come to the conclusion is the one that we need when we go into the conversation, we're stuck and we've trapped ourselves. Yes, I really want to talk about the ego and I'm glad you mentioned it, Kate, because <laughs> this, this side of things fascinates me. Talking about attachment, we hold on to what we believe so strongly, partly because the notion that we could be wrong sends our brain into ultra defensive mode. It's like we want to protect it at all costs as if we were protecting our very lives <laughs> is how it gets. And so I, I, I know that you've got a point and I just want to interact. One of the things that I absolutely love about this book is the stories about the people who love to be wrong. And it's yeah. one of the most valuable things about the book because so many of us hate to be wrong so badly. For sure. And I have worked with leaders across various organizations, they happen to be in the technology industry, where they have incredible skills and strengths as leaders. But one of the things that they could be better at is being able to admit when they're wrong. And I don't know about you all, but I have found myself during the course of my career spending so much time with leaders who, instead of simply admitting that they were wrong or missed something, or are changing their mind. They're crafting a way to tell that story that still makes them look good 
and still makes them look like, well, but I was actually still right the whole time, even though we're going in a different direction and, and massaging that story and marketing it in a way that still caters to their ego. And it's absolutely incredible to me that even when someone says they're willing to be wrong, they're still not super willing to look wrong. And it still has to appear as though they caught it or they're intelligently going in a different direction. It just amazes me. And I think this book talks a lot about how and why we get into that defensive mode and, and how that can be a reason that it's hard to just come out and say, well, I had that completely off. Yeah, you were talking a little bit earlier, Nithya, about what gets rewarded. He mentions at some point the difference between someone being looked at as having evolved their beliefs versus being a flip-flopper. What's accepted, what's admired versus what is denigrated. The whole idea of valuing process more than we do, sometimes even more than outcomes if we put value on that process of rethinking and that starts to be the thing that leaders are admired for, the good thing about that is that most likely that will actually lead to better outcomes. It's just not maybe the outcome that we had sought out to begin with and that we had designed metrics against. I worked for an organization that I felt really walked the talk when it came to values. I know that we've had conversations before about values that are on the wall or on the website versus walking around type of values. Mm. And one thing I really liked about this organization was that when you did give someone recognition, you tied it to a corporate value that was doing what's right always or putting people first. And it was that idea of doing good work while also advancing these values. And that really came to mind when we were reading about the idea of identity being tied to values versus beliefs and how your beliefs can change over time in terms of the how. But he also talks about being clear about the why. Yeah. To spell that distinction out a little bit, Alyssa, thanks for raising it. The way Grant defines beliefs are things that you think are true, whereas values are things you think are important. And that distinction matters for all the reasons you just said, Alyssa. We tend to confuse them. And when we confuse them, that's often when we have a hard time admitting that we were wrong or that we need to be doing something differently. We talked about corporate values and, and what's on the wall. I've certainly worked at organizations where there's something written on the wall, but at the end of the day, what's being rewarded or how people are operating comes from a place of strongly held beliefs. And actually the values aren't what's driving the day. So if we make decisions and engage others from a place of what's important, we're often more likely to be open to data or perspectives we hadn't considered because we're anchored in a place of values. This for me ties back to the ego question as well, because if our sense of identity and our ego is attached to our values, we can be open to exactly the kinds of conversations that we're talking about and to rethinking outcomes and solutions because what's important to me can change, but it changes much more slowly. And there are some core things that are unlikely to change much. 
most of us have some values around relationships. Most of us have some values around what feels sort of psychologically safe and healthy for us. Most of us have some values around what it means to be a good person and to have positive impact in the world. Most of us have these, and they're often very similar over the course of a lifetime. They're often nuanced, but they're often sort of big buckets that we can go, yeah, you know, that's pretty much always been true. Whether I've acted in accordance with it or not, I've been uncomfortable if I haven't been able to and felt good when I did. But they allow for flexibility. Whereas if I believe that this is the solution to the problem and you disagree with me and my ego's attached to that, to get me to change my mind about how we should go forward is going to be really, really hard. And the people that I know who are most stubbornly committed to their beliefs, when they accomplish what they want to in the world, it's because the people who disagree with them have disappeared and the only people that they are collaborating with them are the people that, that started out believing what they believed or who didn't have strong enough beliefs of their own that they were happy to go along with whatever somebody else said. Yeah, there's basically no healthy debate or task conflict whatsoever. And so they, yeah. they happen to achieve their goals because they happen to all agree. As we talk about this beliefs, values, distinction, it reminds me of how important it is to be operating in the shared values realm in order to have influence. For all the reasons we've said, how often have you seen in your work that people try to convince other people by shaming them? Or I think Grant calls it logic bullying them. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's it's don't don't shame people. Don't be a logic bully, y'all. It neither one works. Um, yeah, those of us knowledge <laughs> workers know a lot of logic bullies because For sure. because because once we think we've gone through thinking through something and we've come to a conclusion, if we hold that opinion strongly, we're going to stand down on it when people disagree with us because we put a lot of work into making sure that we came to the right answer because we care. <laughs> yeah, we care deeply, and that doesn't mean that someone's going to see it that same way. And we have to meet them in the middle through, through curiosity, certainly, and through openness of our own. And we're back sort of into the kinds of things that make task conflict fun. If you've actually got the relationship piece going, if you've got shared values and a shared problem, then I could come into a conversation and be like, okay, here's the idea that I have poke holes in it because we want the best solution. And if I've got holes in my solution, I need you to find them because I can't see them. Yeah, I've certainly worked on teams where we actually work in a critique session to the process of building or developing a product or program specifically for that purpose of we're here to poke holes. Please yep. do it. Go for it. Yep. Let's find the holes before we commit to taking action. Because commitment can be a dangerous thing. One of the concepts Grant outlines in the book is through the example of the Vietnam War, he talks about the danger of the escalation of commitment and how once we have said we're going to do something, we are so fixated on staying consistent to that, that we use that initial commitment to justify all future behaviors. Commitment feeds on itself to, in the case of the war, a very dangerous degree because it's easier to just keep doubling down <laughs> for us, psychologically easier to keep doubling yeah. down than to walk back what we initially committed to. Yeah. I'm sort of making a connection between, it feels like we're out of integrity with ourselves if we've made a commitment and we step back from it. 
And that's another place where integrity is something that a lot of us value. And if we stay in integrity by our commitment to our values, then if doing the thing is no longer the best way to achieve our values being manifest in the world, then we're in integrity when we quit or pivot. I see it as a difference between perseverance in the face of an obstacle and change of course in the face of new data. Mm, Yeah. And it's not perseverance for perseverance sake. There are a lot of great stories of people persevering over obstacles and getting to a great result. And those are not to be discounted at all. The different way of looking at it then is, okay, but if there's new data that's really staring you in the face and the best decision is to turn around, then you're looking at perseverance from a broader and more complex perspective than just forward or disgrace. Yeah. One of the things that I absolutely love that he brings up is the idea that the people who are most willing to be wrong are actually willing to be wrong in the short term because they refuse to be wrong in the long term. And it's actually that concern about 10 years from now, I want to be in the right place. And if that means I have to change now, I'd better change now because otherwise I'm going to be walking down the wrong road. Yeah. There's an undertone in this book of not making the questioning process or the rethinking process, something we dread or do once every so often and freak out about, but rather just have it be a regular part of our consciousness to constantly be scanning for new information, to constantly be curious about things that feel tightly held, whether in ourselves or in others, and just have us operate from that place constantly. That goes for strategic decisions at a company that goes for maybe personal or career decisions that we've made and just being comfortable and open to constantly rethinking. And and it doesn't mean we're going to change course. We might rethink and come to the conclusion that, yeah, actually this still feels right. And this is still in line with what's most important, but just making that a regular habit. I think that's a great point, Nithya, is that rethinking doesn't always have to result in taking a new path that there's value in rethinking and realizing that you want to keep going the direction that you're going. Yeah. I think that's incredibly valuable. I had a conversation just yesterday with somebody who was rethinking because they'd gotten some new data and they were trying to figure out whether they should change course or not. I walked her through the conversation and walked her through how the new data impacted And related to the other data that she'd made her decision on before, and she decided to go back and do the same thing again, but with more confidence. Whereas if she had just sort of heard the new data and pushed it away, having heard it once, there would probably have been something niggling her in the back of the mind going, did I make the right decision? Whereas having taken the time to actually incorporate it, investigate it, and make a decision again, even though it was the same thing, there was a level of confidence that she could take moving forward that wouldn't have existed without that willingness to go in and have a think about it. I'm sort of curious what you find in terms of cadence of rethinking. When is it valuable to rethink? He makes an argument for making sure you look at your big goals a couple of times a year. What does it look like if we're good at rethinking regularly? I like the framework he sets out of doing that twice a year, because I think the flip side of reading a book like this could be that you over rethink 
that <laughs> you feel that there's a need for constant rethinking. So just like anything taken to any extreme can be less effective. So I think being really conscious, specifically to your question, Kate, about goals of doing a check-in twice a year, maybe quarterly, depending on what kind of goals you're looking at, being intentional about taking some time and then giving your brain a rest and moving forward on some things when your instinct might be to look at the motivation for rethinking. Because I think sometimes rethinking could come from a place of fear. Yes. And sometimes the fear is an indication to rethink. Sometimes rethinking can be its own method of procrastination. For sure. I think we've all been in situations where we turn into the spinning wheel as it were, and just get stuck in that analysis paralysis. And that's the kind of rethinking that doesn't lead to the outcomes that are going to be the most beneficial, but rather ones that come from a place of strength and curiosity and a genuine desire to go deep. I took a course about two years ago with someone who had a reflection calendar that they sort of handed out at the beginning of the course. And was like, this is what we recommend that you suggest to all of your coaching clients. And I actually thought it was a really solid approach. And it was a variety of things. It was have a 10-year plan and revisit it every three years. Have a five-year plan and revisit it every year. Have a one-year plan and revisit it quarterly. Have a quarterly plan and visit it every two weeks. Have a two-week plan and revisit that every day. And I am not that structured. (laughs) (laughs) And yet the idea that you want to rethink in these small chunks and it's nice to have a big vision and to have a sense of where you're trying to layer these up to. There's something about some goals are so big that you want to revisit them every now and then. And some are small and immediate and you want to revisit them frequently that just sort of struck me as, okay, that's a reasonable approach, even though I don't want that much rigidity in my reflection. I suppose there's also a heavy version of rethinking and a light version of rethinking. We've alluded here to a rethinking process as it relates to personal goals, career goals, strategic organizational goals, whatever they may be, which is a like, we're going to sit down and we're going to address this and assess it. There can also be just a light ongoing rethinking that happens in particular when it comes to the polarized world that we live in and everything coming at us on social media, where you're not carving out time twice a year to sit down and rethink it, but it's more of just embracing a questioning mind and not being afraid to take a critical approach to what you're reading. So it's kind of both and, right? There's this, let's sit down and rethink, and you can decide what milestones work for you for that quarterly or annual or whatever. And then there is just think again on an ongoing basis and don't take everything you read as gospel, which I think is equally important. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a mindset of questioning what you believe that you can sort of carry around with you as you're reading a book or an article, or as you're watching a video, or as you're in a conversation with somebody that just having a, I might be wrong. If they disagree with me, what's the value? If is that new data, we can train our brains to be on the lookout for that kind of stuff in general. I liked his question to ask others of how do you know? Yeah. And the idea of turning that inward and just saying, how do I know? There could be things that I've just said for years or that I've stood by as beliefs. 
and just taking some reflection time to ask myself, how do I know? And to trace it back. Is it because that's what my parents told me? Okay. That's a legitimate way that I know, but also might indicate a place to challenge something and to treat that as opposed to a fact, treat it as a hypothesis and see what kind of experiments I can do to prove or disprove this belief that I've carried around for so long. Yeah. Approaching it like a scientist. Another power that comes from the, how do you know thing when it comes to other people is when people are asked and expected to explain how they know what they know, why something works the way they believe it works. Often that itself can lead to an opening of the conversation and more flexibility and more tolerance for nuance in the gray area than there was previously. As they say, there's this piece of wisdom we may all have heard, which is that when you have to teach something, that's when you (laughs) really find out whether you know it or not. (laughs) And it's kind of related to that in a non-judgmental, non-threatening way. If we ask ourselves and others to say, hey, how do you know that? And can you explain that for me a little bit? And what's behind that? As long as you do it from a place of curiosity, not from a place of demanding something from them, often that can open things up and cause them to be a little bit less attached. The analogy to showing your work in math is right there on the surface. I have a couple of kids who are really, really naturally talented at math, who whenever a teacher would say, here's the problem, show your work, they would write down 46 and they'd be like, I showed my work. Like I just read the problem and I knew the answer. For so many of us, that's how we are with what we believe. When the teacher says, show your work, they don't actually mean show me the work that you did. They actually say, show me the work I need to do to get from this problem to the answer, assuming that I don't know how to do it myself. It's like, bring me along in your process. We need to turn it in ourselves because anything that we have unconscious engagement with, we actually may not know how we got there. That whole idea of bringing people along, I have previously done a lot of work in change management. And there was one thing that he talked about that said a compelling vision for change is one that also has a compelling vision of continuity. That idea that these are things that have to change and we're still holding true to our values. We're still keeping our identity. We're just expressing it in a different way due to changes in the environment, changes in the market. That was really a light bulb moment for me. That idea of how we may need to change and things do change so quickly and balancing that vision for change with the vision of continuity makes it easier than to bring them along the change journey that they need to go on. If they know what's staying constant as things change. Yeah, that's great. In organization and relationship systems coaching work, there's a lovely exercise that they call rewriting the myth. The myth is the story that you tell yourself about who you are as an organization, who you are as a team, the story. And when something changes, there's something about rewriting the myth so that it tells the story again from the beginning. So you can capture that continuity. You don't write a new myth. Adding to your stories is a great way to look at it. And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots, foundational knowledge? Is it at the trunk, main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific tools? In thinking about this book in the context of our tree, I place this as a branches book because I felt that there are so many 
very practical things to take away from it. There's very practical language. We talked about the question of how do you know the idea of opening a conversation with can we debate? He has a whole section in the back about ideas for action. And I felt like this is a branches book that you can continue to refer back to as you're thinking to remember to rethink. I was also thinking of this as a branch book for a slightly different reason, really that it's a single piece of mindset that is addressed in this book. It's that piece about being open to changing your mind. It's one of many skills. It's one that is very useful in the wider context that has application all over leadership. And it's just a single skill. So I put it as a branch. That said, a very thick branch that I suggest that everybody goes and climbs <laughs> and a little bit. I put this in the category of branch as well for a lot of the reasons you all said. What I'll add that's unique is that this book is a behavioral guide. It is how to operate in the world and in your leadership from a new place. And it doesn't mean it doesn't ask you to question fundamental leadership truths. In fact, I think it may, <laughs> and, and that's the power of it. But at the end of the day, thinking again is a behavioral skill, as is questioning others or motivational interviewing or any of the other skills that are outlaid in the book. It's ultimately something you do, and that's where the power lies. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. I had so many thinkaways from this book that it is really, really hard, even harder than usual <laughs> for this episode to nail down just one, but I'll offer this one. In the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations that are increasingly happening at organizations and which leaders find themselves grappling with, the term imposter syndrome comes up a lot and how women, people of color, and other marginalized communities often experience imposter syndrome in the workplace more than average. That could be a whole episode of its own. My thinkaway has to do with the fact that in this book, Grant offers that perhaps imposter syndrome isn't all bad. It can certainly be difficult to navigate and it can hold us back. But I think this book raises the question of, well, what does imposter syndrome tell you? What is it communicating to you when it comes up? When you're feeling it, what is that saying about your environment or about the support network or challenge network that you have? What is it saying about your values that this feeling of imposter syndrome is coming up? I'm challenging our listeners to engage more deeply, perhaps, with their imposter syndrome. And rather than saying, uh oh, I have imposter syndrome, this is bad, how do I get rid of it and become stronger? saying, well, what is this communicating to me about my environment and my values right now? I think the one that I want to land on is one that has been personally transformative for me in that when I started making the transition from having my ego attached to my beliefs to having my ego attached to my values, all of my relationships with other people improved. Honestly, it was transformative for me. I went from feeling like I didn't belong and that I was always fighting for a place in the world to believing that I belonged everywhere I was and that I was capable of making positive relationships with whoever was in front of me. My invitation to our listeners is to get curious with yourself about where is your ego attached? And if you discover that your ego is attached to your beliefs 
I offer you the invitation to see what happens if you play with attaching your ego to your values. I will echo that there were a lot of thinkaways that kept popping up as I was reading this book. The one I'm going to land on is the idea of what does it mean to bring more of a scientist mindset to your work? And one place where I've encountered this is in some training that was focused on career shifters and or entrepreneurs who can get really stuck in what am I the expert in and making a shift from my work is something I'm an expert in to my work is a laboratory to discover. And then you finish that sentence. What would it look like to shift your mindset into that scientist mindset? where your work is about testing hypotheses, doing experiments, getting feedback in whatever delivery system that feedback comes, taking that in to see how your hypothesis stands up and how you might need to tweak it and then continue doing those experiments. The think away is what would it look like to bring more of that scientist's mindset to your daily work? This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under leadership underscore arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.